people think that everything Jesus ever taught is summed up in these few words. Do not judge. Uh, There are many people who would say that you could summarize everything Jesus ever said with this one short, pithy statement. Uh, Jonathan Pennington, I've been reading through his commentary on the Sermon on the Mount, and he he calls this uh, phenomenon, if you will, uh, totalization. Right? It's what people do when they take one little idea and they blow it way out of proportion. Right? They take one concept and they treat it as though it is the, the crux of everything that person has ever said. Right? We tend to do that as people, don't we? Right? We find someone that we like to follow, they say something pithy, and we begin to just interpret every word that comes out of their mouth through that one statement that we so liked. Uh, we have the tendency to do that all the time. But here's the problem with that sort of approach, especially here. If we begin to take that sort of approach towards Jesus and say, everything Jesus said needs to be filtered through this verse right here, don't judge, especially don't judge me. Uh, If we're interpreting everything Jesus said through this verse, then we're going to have a completely warped view. We're going to be imbalanced. We're not going to understand Jesus' words holistically. We're not going to understand the New Testament. We're not going to understand the church. And in fact, we're not even going to understand this verse. Right? If we try to make this the center of Jesus' teaching, we're actually going to be able to uh, twist this verse and, and misunderstand what Jesus is actually getting here. We, we don't want to do that, right? We want to understand Jesus' words in light of what they truly mean. We want to understand Jesus' words in light, in light of his larger teaching, right? We don't want to put uh, the emphasis of Jesus' teaching on the wrong syllable, Right? If we try to interpret the entire Bible through this one verse, then we're going to misunderstand the whole Bible, and we're actually going to misunderstand this verse in particular. But that's what happens so often in the church. It happens so often in our society. This verse has caused mass confusion. And so, what do we do with this? Right? I think there's a number of things that we need to do tonight as we look at this passage. First off, we, we do need to look at what this passage does not mean. And we need to look at what this passage does mean. Right? Because there's confusion, it's important to address both sides of it. We need to know what this verse doesn't mean. And then we can start to dive into what he is actually getting at. So here's where we're going tonight. First off, verses 1 and 2, they provide an overarching uh, theme for all of these verses. Here we see that Christians are to utilize appropriate forms of judgment. We are to use sound judgment and, and, and appropriately correct other Christians when we bring uh, a critique. And then in verses 3 through 6, we have these really memorable illustrations. They're, they're actually kind of funny. Right, the first idea is this guy who doesn't use proper judgment and he's walking around with a 2 by 4 in his eye. Right? And the second illustration seems just really weird. A guy throwing pearls to a bunch of pigs. The pigs turn around and devour him. Like, what in the world is going on here? Well, I think what's going to be helpful is actually if we go to verses 1 and 2 and interpret all of verses 1 through 6 through verses 1 through 2. 1 and 2 kind of gives us a theme, and then we have two illustrations demonstrating what Jesus is getting at. So, let's start in verses 1 and 2. Judge not 
that you not be judged. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Again, what's the actual lesson here? I mean, it seems as though Jesus is giving an absolute command here, an absolute prohibition against any sort of of judgment passing, right? You can't do that at all. But is that what Jesus is getting at? Are we allowed to look at someone else and say, it was wrong that you murdered that person? Like, is that allowed? As Christians, are we allowed to look at our, our, our fellow Christian, a friend, and say, hey, you should not cheat on your spouse, Or is that against Jesus' rules? As a Christian, are you allowed to go to your neighbor and say, hey, I don't think it's good that you're selling drugs on our street. Like, is that allowed? Or would that be passing judgment when we are not allowed to pass judgment as Christians? Well, I think it's pretty clear, especially when we begin to back up, that we are permitted to offer judgment. With wisdom, though, remember, that is the heart of the Sermon on the Mount. Wisdom and the heart, right? Utilizing wisdom and and speaking from the heart. Jesus is interested in what's going on in the heart. And we'll see that later on. That's significant for us to see. I think as we consider this, we actually see that in these two illustrations that Jesus is going to use in a minute, uh, he actually shows that judgment is necessary. Remember, he uses this idea of like the two-by-four. He says, get the two-by-four out of your eye so that you can see clearly, and then what? Point out the speck in your brother's eye. So he doesn't say, don't point out the speck in your your brother's eye. He says, just do it once you have your heart right. Do it once you get that, that log out of your eye. Jesus says, don't give what is holy to dogs. Well, in order to know how we are to fulfill this commandment, we need to use judgment and discern who is a dog, right? Jesus' words, not mine, right? I don't tell you to go out calling people dogs. But Jesus, he says we need to use discernment. Know who's a dog, who's a swine, who's not a dog, who's not a swine, right? So, Jesus is not saying don't ever use judgment at all. He's just saying we need to avoid a certain type of judgment, Let me put it really simply. Jesus is telling us here that we ought to use wisdom and we ought to use grace when we go out and offer judgment, when we offer critique, when we offer correction to other people. And that's important for us to understand. Uh, And to understand this, I think it's important for us to also think about what the word judgment means. I think part of the reason that we in our day and age have such a problem with uh, the idea of judgment is because we have a specific definition of judgment. Right, if I were to ask you, what do you think it means if I were to say, don't judge me? I think in our time, in our culture, right, we would probably take that, that statement in the negative light, like a very negative light. Like, don't judge me in the sense that, that this person has a critical eye determined to see faults in me, and I'm telling them, stop using your critical eye to, to look at me. and and to discern all the the wickedness in my heart. Like, stop that, right? It's a negative idea. Typically speaking, if you hear someone say, that person over there is being judgmental, you automatically perceive that statement in a negative light, right? So maybe you think of like the Kardashians looking at her dress and having something to say about it, 
right? Maybe you think of the sports commentator Stephen A. Smith, right, staring at the camera and yelling at LeBron James, right? That's what you think of. Like, that's the sort of critique we're talking about here. Maybe you're thinking of that one classmate that you have in your class, and she just looks down her nose at everyone in the classroom, right? That's what judgment looks like. But in a biblical context, offering judgment doesn't mean to have a mean, critical spirit, right? It's just kind of taken that definition in our specific culture. Biblically speaking, though, that's not exactly what's going on all the time. O- often, there's, there's not a critical, mean spirit. Like, that's, that's what we are called to avoid. I think that's the, the type of judgment Jesus is actually calling us to avoid here. Jesus here is calling us to use sound and balanced judgment. We are to be honest when we offer positive assessments, right? Get rid of the flattery. Just give an honest assessment in a positive sense. And in the same way, we are to be sober-minded when we offer negative assessments, right? Don't offer a negative assessment out of anger or frustration or or a critical spirit. So I, I think what would be helpful for us is to actually back up and to look at a few different passages throughout the pages of Scripture where we are actually commanded to hold other people accountable to God's word. I actually prayed through a passage earlier in Hebrews chapter 10 that says just that, right? Hold other people accountable. Think about how you are to encourage other people. Okay, so let's look at some more, some more passages other than the one that we prayed through earlier in Hebrews chapter 10. 1 Timothy 3. You can write this down or you can uh, turn there with me. 1 Timothy 3 verse 10. So this is a very positive form of judgment. Again, it's not always a critical, mean-spirited thing in Scripture. It's not that. Here we see judgment is a positive thing. Uh, We are, in verse 10, we're talking about deacons in the church here, and here's what Paul says. So let them, let the deacons be tested first. Use discernment. Use judgment. Evaluate them. Critique them. Use your ability to discern their character. Let them also be tested first. Then let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves to be blameless. So a deacon, is a, it's an official position in the church. It's a servant in the church that's appointed by the congregation. Uh, and here Paul is saying the, the congregation needs to use discernment before they appoint someone to this official role of, of servanthood in the church. Like before you put someone before everyone as an official deacon, you need to use discernment. Discern whether or not this person is actually a legitimate like servant. Assess their character. That's not being judgmental in a critical, like mean-spirited sort of way. No, that's using proper judgment when assessing people. Here's another one. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 1 and 2. Here... Paul is giving us an example of ways we should judge other Christians. And this is in a more negative sense. It's not a critical, mean-spirited sort of judgment. But it is assessing something negative going on in someone's life. And these words are pretty severe. So verse 1, 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Here's what Paul says. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and And it's of a kind that is not even tolerated among pagans. For a man has his father's wife. 
So Paul is looking at the situation in the church in Corinth, and he's saying, hey, this guy is sleeping with either his mother or, like, his stepmother, right? That's inappropriate. Like, don't you realize that? That's not even acceptable among the Gentiles. Like, no one is going to accept this, and yet you guys are allowing this in your midst. So verse 2, look what he says. And you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? So we actually see later in this passage, they're kind of like celebrating their like generosity towards this guy. Like, yeah, grace reigns. Hey, he's sleeping with his mom or his stepmom, whatever's going on here. But hey, there's grace. We're going to allow that to go on here. And they're like celebrating it. And Paul's saying, you guys are arrogant. You need to be mourning because there is such despicable sin in your midst. So notice, that's the first form of judgment here. Paul is offering judgment to the church for allowing this to happen in their midst. And then he offers more, uh, another form of judgment here. He says, let him who has done this be removed from among you. Uh, that, that seems pretty severe. Get him out of your midst. Remove him from your congregation. Don't allow him to associate with you until he repents and turns from his sin. We don't like that sort of language in our culture, right? But Paul is saying this is proper judgment. You know, uh, Jesus actually offers some very similar words in Matthew 18. Matthew 18, verses 15 through 17. Again, if we're going to understand Jesus' words in Matthew 7, we have to look at the other things Jesus taught. So Matthew 18, same book of the Bible. Later on in Jesus' ministry, he's talking to uh, his disciples and he's telling them how they are to deal with sin when it begins to sprout up in their midst as a church. Verse 15 of Matthew chapter 18. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you. That's not gossip, right? It's not gossip here. Jesus says, go to him. First off, this is not judgment. He sinned against you. Go and talk to him about it. That's not being critical. That's not being mean-spirited. It's just saying, hey, you offended me. You sinned against me. You're seeking reconciliation with that person. If that person does not listen to you, then he says, go and get two more people to go with you. So now there's two or three coming to this individual. And he's saying, this is appropriate. It's not gossip. It's it's not out of line. This isn't mean-spirited. He says, if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he, ref- if he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. So, okay. <laughs> so we're going to announce this to the church, right? Different churches practice this differently. Some churches will announce it to the entire congregation. Some churches will announce it just to the pastors and the elders of the church. But again, Jesus is telling us to do this. This isn't gossip. This isn't mean-spirited. This is what Jesus is telling us uh, to do in the church when sin begins to sprout up. And then he says this, And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Look at the end end game of Jesus' point here. 
you need to address other Christians when they are in sin. And then he goes so far as to say that if this individual remains unrepentant in their sin, treat them like a non-Christian. I mean, talk about judgmental, Jesus. Right? You're going to treat this guy like a non-Christian? Jesus is saying, hey, listen, if he's not repenting, then he's not living like a Christian. And therefore, treat this person like a tax collector. Treat them like a Gentile. In other words, quit treating them like they're one of your, in, in your midst. Start preaching the gospel to them and reminding them, hey, if you're actually a Christian, you need to believe this. You need to repent of your sins. The point is, Jesus actually calls us to judge other Christians. We are to hold other people accountable, and we are to do this with God's word. So with all of this said, we need to understand what Jesus is actually speaking against back in the Sermon on the Mount. So we've just discussed a lot about what Jesus does not mean. He does not mean, don't ever cast any judgment. But what is he speaking against then? What is he rebuking us? you know, towards or or, or against? What is is he telling us to avoid? If we should hold people accountable for their sin, how do we understand Jesus' words here? I think to help us understand this, Jesus now gives us a couple of illustrations to prove what he means, right? He goes on to explain what it means to be uh, mean-spirited, to have this sort of hypocritical, judgmental attitude with a couple of illustrations. And that's what he does. He goes on to give uh, a specific illustration, two in a row, that explain the type of hypocritical judgmental attitude that he's speaking against. So first, this is verses three through five, he gives us this illustration. To get the plank out of your eye. Verse three. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but you do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, when there is a log in your own eye? You hypocrite, first take the log out of your eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Again, notice the humor in this, right? Jesus' words are, are like actually funny here, right? This is one of those situations where you're like, actually, this is sort of funny, right? He's, he's telling a story about a carpenter, and he, he says there are these two carpenters, essentially. One of them has a speck of sawdust in his eye. The other carpenter looks at him and says, hey, you got some dust in your eye. The first carpenter looks up, and then like the scene kind of expands, and we see the whole situation. And this other person, this, this guy offering the critique, uh, he has a two-by-four beam like sticking out of his eye, right? Sticking out of his eye socket. I mean, imagine for a moment, right? This, this guy with the speck in his eye uh, he looks at the other guy and he realizes, wait a second, you have a beam in your eye. And the guy with the beam in his eye begins to wreak havoc in this workshop. He begins to like turn around and like paint is going everywhere. Ladders are falling. Uh, so it, it, it's literally like a scene from the Three Stooges, right? Imagine you have a speck in your eye. You don't realize it. Your friend tells you, hey, there's, there's a, a speck of sawdust about to get in your eye. You look up and you notice like to your bewilderment somehow... I don't understand how a log can be sticking out of your eye, but it's happening right now in front of me. Uh, How do you respond? Right? Jesus is telling us 
obviously, there, this is an illustration of what it looks like when someone has sin in their life, significant sin, and yet they're offering hypocritical judgments, right? Get the two by four out of your eye before you go and help your brother or your sister with the little speck of sawdust in their eye. So what does this look like in real life? I, I think we've all been in a situation like this to one, to one degree or another, right? It's, it's the person who offers a rebuke or a correction to someone else, and then it turns out that the one offering the rebuke has all sorts of major sin in his her heart or her heart, and, and this person is not dealing with it. This is the hypocritical rebuke. It's, it's the youth pastor who's telling the, the kids in the youth group to stop looking at pornography, and all the while, the youth pastor's in an affair, right? This is the boss at work yelling at her subordinate because the subordinate is not getting enough done, and meanwhile, the boss is, like, sneaking off for, for three-hour-long paid lunch breaks. Like, have you ever been in that sort of situation where you just feel as though the person talking to you has no right to be speaking to you about what he's speaking to you about or what she's speaking to you about? You're thinking, wait a second, like, you need to deal with your own stuff, right? It's almost impossible to take someone else's rebuke seriously when that's the sort of thing that's going on. Uh, And let's just recognize there are all sorts of major issues with this sort of situation. First off, like, who wants to change after being rebuked by someone who's not willing to, to heed their own advice? Like, no one. Maybe you've been on, on the side of the equation where you're offering the rebuke to someone else while you have the plank in your eye. Like maybe you have been, been calling someone out for their quick temper and all the while you're notorious for having a short fuse. Maybe, maybe you've called y- your friend out for the way she's behaving with her boyfriend and meanwhile everyone is like, hey, you're pretty notorious for the way you're just horrible with boys, right? Like maybe that was you, I don't know. But Jesus is addressing Pharisees, actually, in Matthew 23, and he's speaking about the same exact thing. Matthew 23, verse three. For they preach, but they do not practice. Verse four. They tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear, and lay them on people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to move them with a finger. Jesus is not mincing his words here. The religious leaders of his day made a steady practice of this very thing. They know what it's like to be hypocritical. And this sort of hypocritical judgment can be extremely dangerous because of the damage it can cause. I mean, think of all the damage this sort of judgmental uh, spirit can cause. It can cause people to leave the church, never to return. Right? When people see this sort of hypocrisy playing out, they, they want to get out of get out of Dodge, right? If you are the one receiving this sort of hypocrisy, someone's rebuking you and you're on the receiving end and you're seeing what's taking place in this other person's life, like you're pretty much as good as gone. No one wants to be around people who are not willing to hold themselves to the standard that they're holding other people to. No one wants to be around that. I'm not going to lie. If I'm around that, I want to get out as quickly as I can. People recognize this sort of hypocrisy when they see it and they want to get away from it as fast as possible, right? This is the sort of judgmental attitude that causes people to leave the church. And let's also recognize that sometimes people will see this sort of hypocrisy and they won't leave the church. 
But when that sort of thing happens, what's, what's going to happen? They don't leave the church, but they're very unlikely to actually deal with their sin. Sure, they stayed around, they stuck around, but they aren't willing to deal with go- what's going on in their heart. So, so notice uh, the, this sort of judgmental environment is going to breed one of two things. Either people get fed up with it and they leave the church community because of what they're seeing going on, or they follow the example that they see other people setting. Right? Those are typically the two responses when someone finds themselves in some sort of toxic environment like this. Right? When you have someone discipling you who's a hypocrite and they're casting judgment on you, you're either going to just get out of that situation or you're going to start imitating. Again, Matthew 23. Jesus, again, is speaking to the religious leaders. He's speaking to the Pharisees. And he says this in verse 15. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you travel across sea and land to make a single proselyte. In other words, you make one convert. You you make one follower of yourselves. And when he becomes a proselyte, you make him twice as much a child of hell as you you yourself are. Like, those those are severe words. Right? In this situation... Jesus is saying, you go out and you make disciples who are just like you, only worse. They're also hypocrites. They also follow in your paths. So notice the situation we're setting up here. Either people see the hypocrisy and they leave the church, or they perpetuate the hypocrisy that they've seen demonstrated to them. So how do we avoid this sort of situation in the church? Look back at Jesus' words in Matthew 7. When you look closely here, he's not just speaking in the negative. He's not just saying, avoid this sort of judgment. He's giving us a positive uh, example too. We ought to offer judgment with the right heart attitude. Right? If no one is offering judgment in the congregation and hypocrisy is running rampant, then how is the church ever going to be healed? How is it ever going to change? Jesus says here that we need to take the plank out of our eye and then offer help to the brother who has a speck in her eye, or his eye, her eye, right? So clearly the answer to the hypocritical judgment is not to quit judging altogether, not to quit offering criticism. Instead, we are to offer the right type of critique. We need to offer the right type of correction. Consider yourself, consider your own issues, deal with what's going on in your heart before you begin to offer critique of other people. I mean, think about your own life. Think about times when you have been rebuked. Think about times when you have been corrected and how much easier it is to respond well when the person offering the critique is someone of integrity. When that person has a proven track record, it's so much easier to respond well to that sort of critique. Right? Most everyone is far more likely to respond well when the person speaking to them practices what he or she preaches. This doesn't mean that you can only offer a rebuke after you've t- uh, attained perfection. Right? That's not what Jesus is saying here. 
He's saying, make sure you're quick to deal with what's going on in your own heart. We ought to be quicker to rebuke ourselves than we are to rebuke others. We ought to be, be more intense in the way that we evaluate our own lives than we are in the way that we evaluate other people's lives. You know, to do this, we need to be a people who are quick to recognize the gospel and its implications. We need to be reminded over and over again that we have been shown grace. We are weak, and Christ has shown us his kindness. We are prone to sin. We are prone to wander. We are not perfect. Sin still dwells in our hearts, and yet Jesus has offered us acceptance. He has offered us grace. He has offered us forgiveness. The more we come to recognize the the kindness of Christ and the the kindness of our God, our Savior, who who has rescued us from our own sins, the less hypocritical we will be when we begin to offer critiques to other people because we will know the message we're, we're offering them. Not a message of condemnation, but a message of look to Christ because he is able to not only forgive your sin, but he's able to offer power so that you might overcome your sin. As Christians, we need to be constantly reminded of the gospel lest we be the ones who offer this this graceless, self-righteous rebuke of other people. We need to be reminded of the gospel to guard ourselves against this sort of religious snobbery that takes hold in so many churches. We need to be quick to look to Christ and when we offer rebuke to other people to point their attention to Christ as well. As we continue uh, in our passage, we see another example of what, what righteous judgment looks like, what wisdom looks like in the context of judgment. Verse 6, do not give dogs what is holy and do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. So to be fair, this is one of the most obscure, if not the most obscure uh, statements in the entire Sermon on the Mount. Right? You, you might be reading this and you're thinking, okay, I'm tracking. Like, I, I know what you're talking about. I need to be careful in the way I, I offer judgment. I, I get the illustration about the two-by-four. And then you come across this one-liner and you're like, what in the world do I do with this? Like pigs, dogs, holy pearls, devouring, what's going on? Well, okay, so when, when I come across a difficult passage like this, I, I think there are a couple helpful tips. First, try to sort out what's clear. So what is clear about this passage? I think we can all look at it and we can see there are two uh, statements set up in parallel, and both of these statements communicate the same thing. You have these dogs, and then you have what is holy, then you have pigs, and you have pearls. So those, those two lines are in parallel. They're communicating the same thing. So this helps us as we're trying to interpret it because now we know, okay, I just need to interpret one thing, the idea of dogs and pigs and the idea of pearls and what is holy. Right? So we're not trying to interpret two different ideas here. It's just one thing. He's giving us two synonyms, essentially. Another clear aspect here is the fact that the idea of a dog and the idea of, of a pig uh, in Jewish culture uh, refers to a non-believer. This is a non-Christian. This is a non-follower of God. This is someone who is not following Yahweh. 
not following Jesus. Uh, that's what uh, we can understand a pig or, or, or a, a dog to mean. So in ancient Israel, both dogs and pigs, they were understood as being unclean animals. And so what we see throughout the Gospels, uh, especially throughout the Gospels, is that often those who were not of uh, Israel were referred to as, as dogs or pigs because they were viewed as unclean. Right? It's not because they're like made less in the image of God or something like that. It was just a, a term to describe someone who was considered unclean, not a part of God's people. So here's what we have then and with all of that. So do not give to a non-believer what is holy. Do not give pearls to a non-follower of Jesus. So after we've kind of sifted through everything that's clear here, that's what we're left with. Don't give something holy to a non-believer. And now we do come to a difficulty. What then does Jesus mean by pearls? What does he mean by holy things? Um. You know, it's interesting. I was reading through this, and there, there have been a couple of different interpretations of this throughout the history of the church. And one of the earliest interpretations, uh, this is found in the Didache, which is written very, very early on. In the Didache, it says that, uh, in, in reference to this verse, it says, We should not allow unbaptized individuals to partake in communion. Don't give to the dogs what is holy. Don't give to non-Christians communion, because communion is holy. Dogs who have not been baptized, who are not Christians, should not partake in that. I think, you know, that's a fair interpretation. I think that's more of maybe like an implication of this passage. I don't think that's really exactly what Jesus meant, per se, but uh, it is what it is. I think the best uh, interpretation of this passage is something like this. We need to be careful calling a non-Christian to biblical standards. I think the most basic level, that's what Jesus is saying here. I think that makes the most sense of the context. Uh, I, I think that fits the rest of Jesus' words here. And, and often, like, holy things, that line is referred to as some sort of, like, uh, teaching. So I think what Jesus is saying here is that we need to be cautious to tell a non-believer to live out Jesus' kingdom ethic, right? We need to be cautious to counsel a non-Christian to live out Jesus' kingdom morality. Again, this fits well with the passage. Jesus just showed us how we are to offer correct judgment to a brother, to a neighbor, in other words, to a fellow Christian. And now Jesus is saying that we need to be Uh, equally wise in the way that we offer biblical wisdom to a non-Christian. I think that's, in essence, what Jesus is saying. And there are all sorts of reasons for this. I mean, think of, like, the practical ideas here. Very practically speaking, when you give a non-Christian a Christian moral code, it often makes a non-Christian angry, right? Because you're telling them, In that moment, hey, I know you love your sin. I know you love that thing that you do. That thing that you do defines you. And then you come along with your Christian morality and say, that thing that defines you is wrong. I know it. You obviously don't. You need to get on board with what is moral. 
I think Jesus is just giving some, some honest uh, wisdom lessons here. If you do that, uh, that herd of pigs is going to turn around and devour you. I think that's what he's saying here at a really practical level. Think, think about the world's distaste for the biblical understanding of sexuality and gender. Think about the way the world hates the way the church understands the biblical nature of marriage. Right? If you just come into a conversation with someone that you know who, who is homosexual or transgender and your whole game plan is just to condemn them and, and show them that they're living in sin, you may not have earned a friend there and you may have lost an opportunity to preach the gospel. I think that's what Jesus is getting at here. Jesus is teaching us wisdom. We ought not try to convince a non-Christian to follow Jesus' teachings without telling them to follow Jesus first, right? That's what he's getting at. And, And this leads to another extremely important lesson for us. We cannot forget that the Christian message is not a matter of telling people that they need to fix their lives in order to be Christians. That's not the message of Christianity. That's not the message that we go and preach to our friends who, who are not Christians, who, who happen to be living lives where they're, they're partying every weekend or they're living lives where they're, they're engaged in, in sexual immorality with their boyfriend or girlfriend. Like, that's not the way to win people over. And that's actually an anti-gospel message. You need to fix your life before you come to Jesus. That's not what Jesus taught. Christianity is not, here is what Jesus says you ought to do in order to be loved by God. Christianity is not, here's a list to do's and a list of not to do's that you need to observe before you can be accepted by Jesus. And so when we come to non-Christians and begin to hold them accountable to Jesus' teachings, before leading them to Jesus himself, we are actually running the risk of misconstruing the gospel itself. That's the reality here. So we need to be extremely careful. When we get on a non-Christian's case for not living a Christian type of life, we're communicating that pers- to that person that they need to get on, on track with Jesus' moral code in order to get on track with Christianity. And that's not the order of things. No, get in, on track with Jesus before you get in track with his moral code. That's the message of Christ. Christ the Christian message is that no one obeys Jesus. No one. And yet, because no one obeys Jesus, Jesus is going to actually come and obey or, 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 or um, condemn and judge everyone who does not follow him. That's the message of the gospel. Judgment is coming, and yet, in God's kindness, he has made a way of escape from underneath his judgment. Jesus lived a perfect life. And as a result of the fact that he lived a perfect life, he became the only person to ever live in a manner where he did not deserve God's judgment. Jesus was the only person to ever live who did not deserve God's judgment. Everyone in this room, every person you ever interact with will deserve God's judgment. It doesn't matter what sort of lifestyle they have. It does not matter how moral they may appear on the outside. It does not matter how immoral they appear on the outside. Everyone's at equal standing here. And then, back to Jesus. After living a perfect life, 
after earning the standing of being the only person to have ever existed without receiving or deserving God's judgment, Jesus was then placed on a cross as an act of judgment. So the only one unworthy of judgment was judged. Why? So that those who deserve judgment, that's you and I, might find a way to have our sins forgiven and by so doing, escape the judgment that we deserve, right? You see, Jesus, when you, when you trust in Jesus, there's a great exchange that takes place. A great exchange takes place when you trust Jesus. When you turn to Christ, your sin is placed upon his shoulders. And in that moment, Jesus' judgment becomes your judgment. Right? When he was judged, if you have placed your faith in Christ, you have been judged in Christ. And therefore, because he, he withheld through the judgment of God and, and, and lasted, came out of the grave victorious, rose from the dead, we now have proof that we have been judged in Christ and that we have resurrection in Christ. When you trust in Christ and you turn from your sins, you exchange your rebellious track record for Jesus' perfect one, right? His spotless record. He takes your sin and he gives you his perfection so that you can come to God free of guilt and free from judgment. That's the message that we bring to people. Not get on track with Jesus' morality in order to get on track with Jesus. Get on track with Jesus' cross. And then the, the reality of morality comes in, in the wake of that. We don't obey to earn Jesus' favor. No. We obey out of thanksgiving for what he has done for us. You see, when you come to a, a non-Christian and you begin to explain the, the cross and the resurrection, that is reason to repent of sins in it and of itself. Right? When you begin to recognize, I am a sinner before God, I am held condemned before God, and yet he is willing to die on my behalf so that I might be forgiven and escape that judgment. Like, it doesn't really matter which sins are which. Like, I, I don't really care what sins are which. I, I want to get out of that condemnation and get into righteousness. And once you, you get into the righteous state of Christ and you begin to, to, to celebrate and worship him for what he has done for you, you're like, I, I don't care. Whatever you say God is sin is sin. I'm willing to repent of that. I'm willing to turn of that from that. That's the reality, right? Giving a dog or swine... A Christian morality without giving them Jesus is not helpful. Brian Chappell explains this so well. He points out that when you give a non-Christian a Christian morality without giving them Jesus, you're going to do one of two things. You're either going to send that person into a state of despair or you're going to make that person spiritually proud. You may cause them to, to live a life of despair because... They recognize, I can't keep Jesus' teachings. I can't, I can't live up to this moral code, and therefore I'm condemned. They live a life of despair. Or they find themselves spiritually proud because they start to think that they have the ability to obey God's law without God's help. And that's nonsense. It results in spiritual pride. And this is where the gospel is so helpful, and this is where the gospel 
comes into play. Because when the gospel comes into play, when you begin to understand what Jesus' resurrection and what Jesus' death on the cross actually mean for you, you begin to recognize despair is no more a reality. Jesus obeyed. His perfection is now mine. I am not condemned anymore. Despair is gone. Spiritual pride is also gone. Because the gospel is an axe that, that beats out the proud knees of any Christian. Because we recognize I couldn't keep the law apart from God intervening on my behalf and keeping the law for me in the person of Jesus. So when we begin to accept the gospel, we begin to recognize despair is no longer a thing for me. Uh, spiritual pride is, is nonsensical. That's the reality. Remember, remember what we just sang, right? Who is worthy of honor and glory? Who is worthy to stand before God? Who's worthy to do that? Jesus and everyone who has turned to Jesus in faith. That's it. That's it. So let's make sure that we understand the reality that whenever we discuss bringing judgment or correction or critique someone else, we need to have a constant reminder of what the gospel is, what it means, what it what it implies for our lives and we need to recognize that we need to be a humble people under under the grace of Jesus so that when we offer critique we're offering it in a graceful way in a humble way you see the the gospel is a constant reminder that we have no right to offer judgment apart from the gospel we have no right to correct other people and yet Jesus tells us that because of the gospel, we have the responsibility to offer humble and respectful judgment of other people for their good and with kindness so that the church might mature, so that that person might mature, so that that person might come into a better understanding of who God is and might have a better communion with God and with the church. So I hope that's helpful. I hope that actually clarifies and, and rids uh, your mind of some of the confusion that this passage often tends to bring about. And, and honestly, I, I just hope that this passage will help our community to grow. I hope that we would be a humble people willing to receive rebuke when it comes from others. And I, I pray that we'd be a humble people willing to offer rebuke in a gentle and a kind manner. Let's pray. God, I I do pray for us here in this room. I pray for us that we would be uh, a people willing to to serve you, to love you, to worship you, to honor you for what you have done. I pray that you'd make us a humble people, not proud, not offering a a snobbish sort of Christian uh, living, but rather we pray that you'd make us a humble people willing to offer critique when necessary, not out of pride, but out of humility. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.